Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. Sitting is the new smoking. Um, It's not a perfect uh, expression, um, but the message is there and that sitting is related to uh, many potential problems in the body and not just musculoskeletal prolonged periods of sitting. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. On today's podcast, we're talking about the damage work can inflict on our bodies. Our guest is Dr. Doug Conroy of Conroy Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. Doug has been treating injured folks for decades, including me these days. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. We're with my physical therapist, Doug Conroy, Dr. Doug Conroy. Um, Actually, presently, I am in physical therapy for an Achilles tendon. And um, Doug has treated everybody in my family, I think, um, at least four out of five. Yeah, I think so. Over the last few decades. And... um, Today we're going to talk about various uh, ailments that could be going on in the workplace um, and other things that uh, we think the audience may be dealing with. So first, tell me what kind of physical therapy you do. So physical therapy um, is is a broad field. My area of specialty is orthopedic and sports injury. Um, Orthopedic relates to muscle, tendon, bone, and my specialty is in the orthopedic section. There's specialties in pediatrics with children, geriatrics with the elderly, uh, neurologic with those that are um, head trauma or stroke, spinal cord, but the orthopedic uh, Lee-involved patient is our specialty. Okay, and how long have you been doing this what what's your story i've been fortunate to to practice physical therapy for now over 35 years um we've been in business about 37 years and i think i've been 40 years now practicing as a physical therapist hard to believe it's been that long what made you want to do it when did you know you wanted to do it 
probably my own personal injuries. Back in <clears throat> high school, I was very involved in athletics and just uh, couldn't stand missing a minute of any game. And when I was injured and I couldn't play, the, the injury process and healing process just really always intrigued me. What were you playing? Um, well, most of my injuries came playing football. Ah, football. Okay. Position? Well, in high school, I was a running back. <laughs> and, um, okay, so... And in college, I sat on the bench, so... <laughs> you, you actually were on the bench in college, U of I? Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Were you, you were like Rudy. Yeah. Yep, I was a Rudy. <laughs> yep. So, injuries. I'm assuming a lot of the people who come in here are injured at work. Do you get more injuries from office jobs or from factory jobs? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Because um, most people wouldn't think injuries when they think of office work. Office work, but would you? So... Certainly, um, the obvious or what would appear to be the obvious question would be the industrial setting, uh, you'd see a lot more injuries. And that definitely was the case years ago. But with uh, current studies in ergonomics and uh, most employers today are very aware, you know, of the high costs and the, the, the significant loss that an injured worker, the, the impact that makes on their business, no matter how large a business they have, that's a significant uh, loss to a business. Um, just the, that, that, that person's contribution at work as well as the costs involved. So the workplace industry has gone to great lengths educating themselves, uh, the mm -hmm. leadership as well as the workforce. For manual labor jobs. Yeah, or any uh, factory level work. So we're talking desk job versus someone who's on their feet using their arms and legs to perform work. Um, a lot has gone into um, educating the employer as well as the workers on um, safety and productivity at work. So the, the, the injury rates have come down dramatically at, in the workplace. We are starting to see um, as more and more as computerization has come about and more and more desk uh, type related um, occupations, we're starting to see a whole new spectrum of um, physical uh, ailments that can develop from prolonged use of uh, computers or prolonged sitting. Like, like, like carpal tunnels or back problems or... Neck problems, carpal Ugh, tunnel. That's what I got. Um, spine problems are very, very common. You know, it's, it's been referred to as... As uh, I'm setting up and sitting up in my chair right now. Um, you know, s sitting is the new smoking. Um, it's not a perfect uh, expression, um, but the message is there, and that uh, sitting is related to uh, many potential problems in the body and not just musculoskeletal prolonged periods of sitting. So that has its own um, limitations. Years ago, we used to um, fight for opportunities for our injured workers to be able to have um, a desk job while they're healing, and um, we see now that uh, the value of sitting is not uh, what we once thought it was. It allows the body to rest if, if it's a job that person have where they're on their legs and they need to be able to sit periodically. But balance is the key, and um, that's what we always so, strive for. So if you have a job um, where 
you are sitting in front of the computer um, majority of the time. What should you do? Should you get up every 25 minutes? Should you, uh, are there exercises you can do with your legs or what? The stand-up desk. What, what, do you, what do you prescribe to people? Well, there's some general guidelines and recommendations that uh, could be followed. The way we manage our patients is that we take every case individually. I can remember spending quite a bit of time with your father with his workstation. Um, and it uh, required you know, several sessions back and forth. He would take pictures short of me going into his um, office. He took pictures of where he was sitting? Yeah, and of his desks and um, his I workstations. I sit where he sits. And, um, and we talked through all that. And, uh, and you know, there's certain principles that you like to institute uh, as far as how your spine should be positioned and your wrist and shoulders. Are most chairs bad? Most are bad. What kind of chair would you recommend? Something like really simple or like a deluxe... Uh, Herman Miller office chair or yeah what's what is so um, interesting you say really simple um, some of the um, for many of my spine patients that have had surgery um, oftentimes my recommendation is a hard kitchen chair uh, for sitting uh, with good posture good support like any cushion on it or maybe a, a small cushion on on the wood but small but then um, to be up and moving out of that position maybe every 10 to 15 minutes or when they feel they need to get up. So 10 the to idea 15 is minutes. short periods of sitting. Now for someone who, that's after spine surgery. So someone who is um, working an eight to 10 hour day, your highline level chairs, um, those that probably, you know, in the $100 plus range, mm-hmm. most of those manufacturers now are making chairs that offer adjustments on... Of course, you don't know exactly how to adjust it because there's so many right. different options. So that's part of our instructions that, that we give our patients what they should be looking for as they adjust the height, the depth, the hand, uh, the hand support systems. Um, but most chairs today have the options for adjustments and that's the key. Um, but generally softer is worse than harder. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, chairs that move on rollers are less ideal than those that are stationary. Okay, so somebody uh, like me that has a, gets a sore neck sometimes or a sore back sometimes, um, how many times a day should I be getting up? So, Or how many times an hour? Yeah, and again, that's very individualized based on how people are functioning and performing. Um, but it's um, recommended that, you know, after about 20 to 30 minutes in any one position, and even the, regardless of how good your posture is, it's good to change positions. Um, we like to look at what movement pattern that you perform repetitively um, because that's just necessary for your job tasks, your responsibilities. You may have to perform a certain arc of movement repeatedly for, you know, uninterrupted periods of time. So we need to look at that and we just need to reverse those movement patterns at least um, on a 30 minute to hourly basis to take the body out of that movement. It's probably even a fine um, and biomechanically sound movement pattern, but if done repetitively, um, it can create problems, um, fatigue or just overuse. Okay, so 
Now, what about, you know, a lot of our listeners work in a shop. Um, is it in a way healthier to have a, a to be a mechanic or, um, you know, a machinist than work in an office? I would say yes. And wow. by really by far. Um, a mechanic that can that can be on his feet, moving into different positions, has the opportunity to use his whole body and all joints of his body in um, full arcs of motion. Um, it's much preferred than someone who's sitting in a in a flexed position at a desk all day long for 20, 30, 40 years. Now, the risk we have with our mechanics is that there are times where Awkward positioning is a is Lift, only, lifting stuff or yes. Yeah, so, for instance, uh, having to reach into a tight position with your body twisted and awkwardly held. Sometimes there's no uh, alternative to that, so the body can sometimes be sacrificed um, that way. The heavy, the sustained, or the awkward lift um, that a desk person is not exposed to, that person out on the floor is so um, those are um, those are situations that we spend a lot of time trying to educate the employer and the worker so who who are you getting more of in here people with well, desk people with desk jobs or people with um, physical labor jobs um, so when I first started it was no desk jobs it was all physical labor all by a wide margin I have to say that perhaps it might be more desk related or computer related that is so um, interesting than the industrial is that because there's more people doing that well probably there's more people doing that there's far less work injuries than what we've had years ago um, I would say that's probably what we're seeing so what should somebody um, doing physical labor do to protect themselves um, certainly make, make, make certainly, sure make sure to sit every 25 minutes well follow no that the body is 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 developed in such a way that it should be able to tolerate an eight to ten hour day on their feet, as long as they have opportunities to move. Wear good um, shoes or good shoes. Um, opportunities to move, to listen to their body, and to um, um, to be able to use different parts of their body to perform their tasks. What they have to watch. The first advice I would give to them is if there's any safety standards that have been established by their employer. Take those to heart, listen to those, and follow those very strictly because they were developed um, by people with training um, for their own good and for their own safety. So follow all those recommendations. The other point would be to listen to their bodies. They know when they're being put into an awkward position. They should listen to their body, think safety first. Um, they may have to reposition, come out of that position, um, but don't push themselves to the point of where they're starting to get pain while performing. There's the unavoidable slip, trip, um, right? So, so shift. Those, so those are more. So it's more like accidents that happen in a shop, whereas it's more habits that happen in an office. Yeah. So it's it would be kind of a um, in the office. It's more micro trauma. Um, overuse, cumulative, slow developing, whereas um, in the work out on the floor, it might be a macro trauma, a large uh, a shift of 
weight as they were lifting it and it uh, or a slip on a, a slippery portion of a floor um, and those are accidents that um, are bad luck and that do happen I now I don't know if you I'm it's impossible to have this statistic but like what percentage of people should be in physical therapy that aren't yeah half the people well <laughs> yeah you know I don't know um, it would sure make it easier if many of the patients that we do see, if we saw them earlier uh-huh. before their um, problem becomes so ingrained that it's uh, to reverse it, it's going to take a while. And sometimes it's not completely reversible. Um, yeah, right. I, I remember talking to somebody I knew the other day, right? And he had had uh, surgery or something and then he had waited a year and then st- stopped walking correctly and then he had to correct it which can take a lot of time. It's almost twice as long to correct something that's been developing. So for six months. Um, Scary. Yeah, it takes a while to reverse those patterns. Okay, let's shift this a little bit. Um, surgery, back surgery, knee replacements, meniscus. Are we getting too many surgeries? I know, obviously, everything is... Uh, on a you know person to person basis back back surgery are are, are we way overdoing it with back surgery cuz it seems like a that's a pretty big deal back surgery is a big deal um back surgeries have um improved in quality um just remarkably and, and a lot safer now much safer um this, the minimally invasive concept of going in and disturbing the natural body as little as possible. Um, we've this microsurgery advancement. This, uh, these are all very good developments, but we are finding, and the data is building that um, there's been too many surgeries. Yeah, that's what I've heard. So the definitely the trend in in surgical management in just about every condition, not just orthopedics is uh, less is better. So um, all surgery now is geared towards um, minimal invasion, less time involved in the body, um, and uh, conservative management first. So conservative management would be physical therapy. So it's a seldom, it's a, unless there's been a specific injury with a break or a rupture, surgery is seldom the first option. Mm-hmm. And um, more and more um, physical therapy is tried first or other conservative measures, and um, the outcomes are, are quite good. If the person's willing to work. It requires a compliant patient to get better with non-surgical means. Um, they have to follow the recommendations um, for proper exercises, proper um, preventative strategies, at the workplace or at their home to allow their bodies to heal. If they don't follow those recommendations, uh, they aren't going to get better. And then... They get addicted to painkillers and... Yeah, that's a real problem. But less so as we speak. Really? You think the painkillers, the painkiller problem is getting better? Dramatically dropping in the medical arena. Well, that's, Oh, you're far saying that it's, pres- being, it's being prescribed less. Far less prescribed. Far less prescribed. Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email 
at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. I interviewed my cousin, first cousin once removed, who's an osteopath. And he said that the key when you get a knee replacement is you want to use as much pain medicine as possible right away. He said that it's the people that try to be conservative at first. Those are the people that end up getting addicted afterward. Is, is this, would that's, you say that's the case? That's a school of thought for sure. Um, the key is to read your patient to get them moving as soon as possible after surgery. Right. So if you take the pain medicine, it can get you moving. If, if a patient requires that to get them moving, walking and home and back to their normal environment out of the hospital setting, then it's worth um, perhaps a short course of that. But it really requires close management by their uh, prescribing physician and uh, physicians are on it. They're watching that, and um, they're definitely watching those that do need some help in the beginning. Mm-hmm. With but definite they're, plans they're a little to, less liberal in their prescription. Not one size fits all. Not everybody is prescribed the same amounts. Um, and that was happening before? Well, it was more like, I have pain. Give me more. Um, there's some of that. It's, th- this, is a very, this is a complicated topic, and actually... Laws that were set in place um, by our government in managing patients' conditions did contribute to this um, epidemic of opiate use. And um, it's um, a detailed discussion, more than what we can carry on here. Sure, sure. Um, but oftentimes, it's government payment policies that uh, can can set things in motion. And um, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, Physicians were required to handle pain in a in a different way than we handle it today. How? What's the difference? Well, it's going to get. We'll try not to get too detailed here, but physicians and the best the best approach to managing pain is to spend the time, take the time to figure out where is the source of pain. Um, to do that, it takes a while. To do that, you sometimes you oftentimes fail until you find that source. Um, but there is discussion of pain and um, tracking pain. Uh, when that discussion and that process is not allowed to take place where pain needs to be treated more quickly, more effectively, um, removed from patients' reporting of symptoms, you have to look for a faster method to, do, to, to, to resolve this complaint and that faster method was not the correct method. And the faster mm-hmm. method was um, the opioids and uh, those unnatural means for suppressing pain. These were um, mandated to be used by physicians and it forced them to manage pain in, 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 in ways that they were never trained. It was mandated by the government or by the medical association? With, with, with um, reporting of patients' conditions, mm-hmm. um, particularly with, with, our, with our requirements for Medicare and treating. And so um, it forced doctors to, uh, to manage their, and move their patients along in a different way that they were not trained or comfortable. And that's, real, that's one school of thought that led to the widespread use mm-hmm. and uh, 
and we've seen the repercussions of that. So, um, and that's changing. Well, that's good in, to in know. In very good ways now. Um, well, more more knowledge of it. Knee replacements. Uh, should more people have knee replacements? Um, yeah, this is also sort of a segue, and a, a lot of our listeners they are involved in making the stuff for knee replacements. Yeah. So yeah. they're interested in the trends here. Um, are more people getting knee replacements? Should more people get knee replacements? I know my dad got one knee replacement and it seemed to have really good effect. We kind of wish he would get the second one, but I understand that it's a, you know, it's a big sacrifice. It's a big deal to get a joint replaced. Um, what we see with the joint replacement patient and um, post-operative course, it's, uh, it's, that's a procedure that is not being um, overused. Um, and, um, Do you think it should be used more? It, what we're seeing now is that the components um, that go into joint replacements are better. They last longer, uh, they're more resilient, and because of that, patients that are younger now, it used to be that joint replacements had a, had a limited life, whether it be 10, 15, 20-year max. So patients weren't advised to have a joint replacement until they were maybe in their sixth or seventh decade of life. So they wouldn't outlive their, or out, wear out their prosthesis uh, and have to have it replaced because that's not fun, nor is it the outcomes very good for replacing prosthesis that went into a joint replacement. So, um, but now the components. Oh, I see. So they only wanted to do it for old people because they didn't want to have to go in a second time and redo it after the components wore out. And they they typically wore out ten to fifteen years. Yeah, but depending, and uh, those 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 numbers improved over time, and now uh, the components are of such a high quality that they can last longer. And so like, people- Like young, 20 years, 30 years? There's out there. And there's people now that are younger receiving joint replacements that are experiencing very significantly improved quality of life. And uh, I, I can't believe some of the patients now in their 40s and 50s that are having replacements. Um, but the, the beautiful thing about that is that um, they their their level of function improves so dramatically because they're not in pain. The overall benefit to their health is immeasurable, really, and so mental, physical, and emotional health. Um, they have a new joint and they can perform and function. And so, what we're seeing with joint replacement surgeries um, has really uh, been very very favorable. And and the main criterion for joint replacement is that patient comes to the surgeon and says, "I'm ready." It's not the surgeon saying, I can fix you, I can do this for you. Um, and it's, that's, that's an unusual situation that we see in orthopedics anyway. It's usually the surgeon for, informing, for like a back. informing like. the patient, this is what you need, this is what I can do to help you. Whereas when it comes to a joint replacement, the surgeon is waiting for that, that patient to come and say, it's time doc, I need this. And, and do, you, um, do you think that's good? It is because um, you can't, to determine when is the right time for surgery, there's really not an image or a scan that can give you the absolute information. You can't, you will not, you don't, uh, you know, an MRI or a CT scan is essential for planning surgery, but it's not the determining factor 
in many cases when you should have surgery. The patient has a voice and the patient has to have a very vital role in determining when that should be. Um, with a joint replacement, it's never an x-ray or a CT that will determine when they have surgery. That, that's a factor, but it, the, the surgeon will wait to that patient says, my quality life has dropped. Um, it's time now. I, I need something done here. I'm ready. And when that point comes, 99% of the time, the outcomes turn out to be very, very good. The patient um, was ready, mm -hmm. uh, in both mentally and physically and emotionally, and the outcomes turn out to be very, very good when the patient um, is the prime driver on their management with sound advice from their surgeon. Interesting. Now, there are acute traumas where surgeons have to make the call and make great calls. It's not elective surgery. I'm talking where there's been trauma, there's been a fracture, there's been a, a laceration of a tendon, there's been a... Um, right, sometimes there's there's little choice. Like when I... With your heel my, cord. Well, I tore my Achilles tendon mm -hmm. 13 years ago, and yeah, I mean, would there have... I mean, would it have healed that I just... There are, there there is a... There is a non-surgical option for that. Um, at the time, yours, you you had your problem. Um, Twenty six. The, the outcomes weren't as great for the more conservative course of non-surgical management. And as young as you were, um, and as active as you needed to be, um, the surgical option was the best for you. And yeah. for all young athletes, that would have been the option for someone that um, maybe twenty years older now that um, can control um, the amount of activity that they have. But why wouldn't they want surgery? I mean, sure, you know, you don't want to put them under, but. Well, there's, risk, there's risks with surgery, but, um, and that would be the main thing, that you're able to avoid the risks of surgery um, and you heal naturally with protection. It takes longer. It's a longer course to get better. Um, but in some cases, it's, it's um, as good as surgery. And um, you weren't exposed to all the elements and the risks of surgery. Um, but it takes longer. Um, and uh, we don't have outcomes on those cases that have returned to aggressive, repetitive, sustained forces. Um, where, and, and you went through a lot of that after your surgery. So yeah, yeah. Um, it just depends. Sure. Uh, you know, just a few few more questions. Uh, you know, you and I have talked about um, Kevin Durant and his Achilles in injury. What What are the worst injuries for for an athlete or for a normal person too to get over? And and just I was just curious if if you had to get like reconstruct an ankle versus an Achilles. Well, you know, like with bone screws or whatever. What what would be worse? Yeah. Well, it's kind of hard to answer that question. You, you don't think that Durant is, you think he's going to be a shadow of what he was? Well, that's a bad injury. It's a bad injury to sustain. Um, you've heard of ACLs, right? Yeah, ACL isn't as bad, is it? Well, it's, it's ACL was a career-ending injury. The Tommy John uh, the ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow was a career-ending injury for pitchers. Now, now it's like a career-saving. It's a career-saver, and yeah. it only gets better. 
Um, we will see the day where a Tommy John will be a in-season um, recovery, meaning in season. Now, anybody who goes through a Tommy John now misses a season for sure. It's a 12-month process before they're back on the mound. We're seeing injuries um, in the thumb that were a career under, no longer a career under. Why? It, the advancements of material and surgery. So the Tommy John will probably, when I say in season, meaning a pitcher hurts his arm, He'll have the surgery with the proper types of prosthesis being used. And the rehab will be less. The, the rehab less and the downtime less. Um, we see it already with the, uh, the uh, ulnar collateral ligament of the thumb with in-season repair and return to sport. Now, the thumb is probably a little bit easier to manage than the elbow, uh, but equally very stressful regions of the body sustained a trauma with sport. But... Um, so ACL, the advancement in surgery and rehab, um, no longer career ending. And um, I don't know, I imagine at some point we'll have in-season repairs on ACLs too. But a lot of times the ACL people don't get surgery, they just go to you, right? And you strengthen it? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, but, you know, for the younger the athlete, the higher level the athlete, the standard still is to, to go in and repair as quickly as possible so they can get back on the field as quickly as possible. And for the pro athlete, that, that window might be a three to five year window. And so for them, to yeah. for their livelihood, to, to maximize that opportunity. But um, with the Achilles, um, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a very strong structure, very resilient and goes through life with most people without any problem. Um, but when it breaks down, it's a problem because um, our current surgical management. Um, it's a real pain, no pun well, intended. It, I've been like rehabbing mine hard, my left one, not the one that I tore before. Yeah. So um, it's it sustains the entire weight of the body. And um, it's uh, very high demands placed upon that structure. And so when it breaks down, it's it's a big deal. And uh, for Duran, it's going to be a big deal. Um, any athlete it is. Yeah. But basketball, I think it would be one of the worst. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't know the extent of his, his injury. I, I didn't really read any of the details of that. If it was a partial tear or whatnot, that all would affect things and not yeah. be quite as serious. But, um, and obviously, they would have really loved to have avoided that. Yeah, well. it'll, it'll be the probably the most scrutinized set of uh, MRI images in modern medical history. You know what was missed, perhaps on imaging. Um, you know where the imaging is not a hundred percent sensitive or specific towards a condition. So um, the gold standard really is going in and operating to see what the extent of the injury is. So. You know, imaging, and there's different qualities of imaging with MRI. So, um, would it make sense to get my Achilles image now? Um, no, we, we wouldn't be able to tell anything. No, no, it wouldn't share any more information probably than what we have at this point. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just, I'll just, just keep going at it. Uh, is there um, anything else that uh, you think? people should know um, about physical therapy that they don't? Um, I think the main, the most valuable advice I could give is that patients know much more about their body 
than they realize. And what they share with us is very, very important information. Um, they don't know um, the anatomical terms. They don't know the details of how a body functions and heals and recovers, but they know their bodies. And uh, so information that they have to share is critically important to our management. What they need to know is that they should listen to their bodies and when their bodies are giving them signals, generally it's pain or a strain or some type of an unnatural stiffness, they should listen to that. How much do you trust the patient over your own objective observation? Well, it's I couldn't do it without the patient. I, I, I value and certainly my test confirm what their problem is, but every shoulder bursitis is different. Every rotator cuff tear is different. And there's a lot of commonality and a lot of the same types of procedures we can use that help many people. Um, but every case is unique. Um, but my point is, is that a lot of problems could be avoided if patients just listen to their body and analyze what it was that caused that pain. So if they're on the, on the line and uh, we see a lot of people from, you know, uh, auto manufacturers, Ford Motor Company, where it's a lot of repetitive, it's not heavy, um, it's not awkward, but it's repetitive. When they start to feel something, they should kind of look at what they're doing that preceded that feeling try to adjust their positioning, alter the way that they might do it, or if they can change positions and perform another task, so many, so many problems could be avoided. The injuries, the accidents are gonna happen, the trip, the slip, the fall, unavoidable. I mean, these are, you know, but sometimes- people, shouldn't, people need to not ignore and hope it goes away. Not, it, that because that, as we age, it doesn't go away. And it, uh, by ignoring, it creates a bigger problem. So just uh, listening to your body, making the modifications, um, just a simple adjustment. Um, if you've been sitting and your back is starting to get a little bit of an ache, you've probably gone a little bit too far in that position. Um, you should note the time. If it was after an hour in that position, you should make a note that at 45 minutes, you should probably get up, move yourself, get out of that position and be mindful of uh, sitting what in front it was. of a computer is the new smoking it's a problem we're seeing a lot of uh, musculoskeletal problems related to prolonged sedentary positioning